So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. My name is Tanya Sharp, and I am an associate professor at the University of Toronto, Factor in Winnetosh Faculty of Social Work. And for the past 20 years, I've been developing a program of research relevant to Black survivors of homicide victims. But before I provide you with more information relevant to my research, I think it's important that you understand what drew me to this work. Several years ago, before grad school, uh, I was working at the Harvard School of Public Health, Division of Public Health Practice, working side by side with family members and friends who were surviving the homicide of a loved one. And while doing this work, I met Edna. And when I met Edna, Edna's son had just been murdered. A bunch of us who worked with Edna attended the funeral home to pay our respects. And when I entered the funeral home, I extended my hand and I said, I'm so sorry for your loss. Edna looked at me with disdain and said, I didn't lose my son, he was taken from me. It was in that moment, that exact moment that I knew I was called to do this work. It was in that moment, that exact moment, in fact, that two things became abundantly clear. If I, as a trained social worker, even with the best of intentions, didn't know, not, didn't know how to help her, to support her, how equipped were other service providers? In the back of my mind, I also thought about how would Edna cope with the murder of her son? I tell that story and many of you watching who will watch it have heard me tell, tell that story over and over and over again. And I tell it every time, mostly every time I actually deliver a presentation because I think it's important that we never forget to say their names, that we never forget the reasons why we are often doing the work. And so I'm grateful for the opportunity to share with you today the reasons behind why I do the work, but about also talk about some of the work that we actually are doing. Um, unfortunately, Edna is one of many Black people struggling to survive the homicide of a loved one. Let me elaborate. On average, each year, 17,000 murders occur in the United States. And what you'll hear many people say is that compared to other forms of violence, uh, violent crime, that number is fairly low. However, when you think about who the majority of homicide victims are, young black men living in urban areas, when you realize that although African-Americans make up only 13% of the US population, and yet they account for more than half of homicide victims, and when you understand that on average, African-Americans experience the homicide of a loved one at least two times in their lifetime, 
you begin to realize we are dealing with an epidemic that disproportionately impacts some of our most vulnerable. Now, the overrepresentation of Black homicide victims is not unique to the United States. Let me say that again. The overrepresentation of Black homicide victims is not unique to the United States. Out of the 13 provinces and territories from 2014 to 2018, the number of homicides has been highest in Ontario, while data relevant to the prevalence of homicide by race and ethnicity is not yet available. Police reports and countless reports from community members where Blacks predominantly reside suggest that homicides occur in predominantly African, Caribbean, and Black communities. Moreover, Toronto Police Service data suggests that over the past five years or so, the neighborhoods that have experienced the greatest number of homicides are right here in Toronto. Moss Park, Mount Olive, Silverstone, Jamestown, Kingsview Village, the Westway, Malvern, and Scarborough Village, to name a few. Combined, these five neighborhoods make up less than 5% of the population of Toronto and yet account for 13.7% of homicides occurring in the city over the past five years. In 2007, young black men comprised 4% of the population in Toronto and accounted for almost 40% of the city's homicide victims. These data suggest that the homicide victimization rate is nearly 10 times higher for black males in Toronto than for the Toronto population as a whole. The numbers alone don't allow for us to see. They don't allow for us to see that for black people, our relationship to one another extends far beyond blood ties and country borders, if you will. So the ripple effect and impact of homicide violence is far reaching, suggesting that we are dealing with a disproportionate number of African, Caribbean, and Black people who are struggling to make sense out of that which is senseless. The numbers alone devoid of both social and cultural context and gaps in research, policy, and practice often allow for false narratives to be made about the causes and the consequences of experiencing the homicide of a loved one for Black communities, often resulting in mistrust in formal institutions such as the police, Mental, mental and medical health services and universities. And so to address these gaps, these gaps that impact our global communities, I wanted to build a legacy of research, cement a legacy of research, if you will. And to that end, I founded the Center for Research and Innovation for Black Survivors of Homicide Victims, AKA the CRIB. 
The crib is strategically focused on advancing research policy and practice for and with black survivors of homicide victims throughout our global community. Now, I was elated. I was ecstatic, as were many community members to partner with the crib, to establish the crib. I hired RA scholars and uh, doctoral students and my research coordinator from the US all joined, all joined together to, to make this vision become a reality. And in January, 2002, we launched our website. We got the keys to our actual space at the Factor in Winnetosh School of Social Work. And then COVID-19 hit. And our world changed. So for the first few weeks, to be honest with, with you, uh, like many of you, I scrambled with my colleagues. I was focused on moving our classes online, making sure instructors were ready to go, making sure students, holding student space for students who were struggling with how to manage the weight of COVID-19 now that it became their new reality. And then amidst all of that, all of the anxiety, if you will, and fear and chaos that COVID-19 brought about, Black people were still being murdered. Becoming a mere hashtag, if you will, of memories. I think about our most recent, Ahmaud Aubrey, hashtag jogging while black, hashtag eating ice cream while black, hashtag driving while black, hashtag breathing while black. And I struggled even more. I realized that it was imperative for the crib to move their physical presence to an online presence. I realized that most importantly, with the world watching, paying attention to all the inequities that have existed before COVID-19, unequal access to educational opportunities, healthcare opportunities, housing, uh, and so on and so on. Now was the time to act. I wondered how can we fuel the focus placed on this very poignant moment in time and turn this moment into a movement, a movement that would allow us to begin to really focus, strategi strategically focus in a proactive way on how to move from a moment to a movement, a movement that would allow us to shape our policy, our practice and our research to uplifting the voices of some of our most vulnerable who are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 as a result of the inequities that have exist existed before it. So I went back to my team and I had candid conversations with my team.
I talked to them about how one of our partners at the Canadian, Med the Canadian Mental Health Association was very concerned about the fact that as we were living in within this global pandemic, very concerned about the fact that we may likely see increase in intimate partner violence, suicide. Uh, we might see some mental health issues, increase in mental health issues. And who were we going to call upon to provide services to those in need? I was talking to friends about the fact that social distancing is a privilege and that many of the communities, pr predominantly black and brown communities that we work with, don't have the luxury of social distancing. And so how are we going to protect them from further harm? And so these conversations played over and over and over again, like a soundtrack, if you will. And so I went to my team and I, I think that I, at this moment, moment, I'd like to, to say their names as well. Dominique Smith, Janelle Anderson, Megan McPolland, Allison Gray, Trevon Edwards and Sarah Powers played an instrumental role in just two weeks, us brainstorming. How could we hold the space? How could we speak and uplift the voices of so many who feel voices, voiceless that are impacted by COVID-19? And they came up with a wonderful idea of hosting uh, a series, uh, a series of episodes on some of the structural inequalities that are impacting our most vulnerable under the pandemic of, of COVID-19. And so we actually brainstormed it back and forth. I was like, people are homeschooling. They're trying to teach online. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And we simply brainstormed about what time of day we would do this. I figured Wednesday in the middle of the week would be a great day. Uh, we realized that perhaps individuals have finished having dinner and putting their kids to bed around eight o'clock, so perhaps 8.30. And that's where we dubbed the series, um, 30 at 8.30. 30 at 8.30 is designed to simply hold the space, hold the space for 30 minutes every week to uplift the, a plethora of concerns of some, our some of our most vulnerable communities that are impacted by COVID-19, but also, again, I say, so many structural inequalities that have existed before it. Our episodes have focused specifically on structural violence, and in particular, looking at all of the structural in in inequities that I named, um, unequal and unequitable access to healthcare, education, uh, employment opportunities, uh, housing opportunities, the disproportionate overrepresentation of individuals who are victims of homicide and gun violence, and really understand that those inequities are actually inherently violent. And with that understanding, that fundamental paradigm shift, if you will, how do we then begin to create policy and practice that speaks to intervening and more importantly, preventing it. Uh, so Dexter Voisin, uh, the Dean at the Factor and Winnetosh Faculty of Social Work was our guest host that day. 
Then the next week we said, hmm, I, I have to tell you, when I first um, applied for uh, the position here at U of T and the preparation, I'll never forget, uh, for my job talk materials, um, I wanted to pull these stats, the data that would be most relevant to the experience of Black survivors of homicide victims. And to my amazement, um, uh, I did not know that Canada does not collect data by race. Uh, it was shocking, but what was most profound for me was the fact that I knew about this information all against the backdrop of communities right here in Toronto, individuals, community, uh, individuals who are outreach workers, community-based agencies calling me and saying that they were seeing the annihilation of predominantly black and brown people in the streets of Toronto. And so it became very clear that we had to have a conversation, a conversation that centered around if we're not counting, then ultimately the phenomenon, the disparaging marginalized phenomenon doesn't count. So I brought on my colleague and dear friend, Arjaman Siddiqui to talk about race, the importance of race-based data collection. Uh, we were happy enough to learn that moments uh, after her presentation that the Toronto public health system is now going to begin to collect uh, data by race. Uh, we've partnered with many individuals who are also partnering with the T Toronto Police Services Department to collect data by race. So there's movement in that area. But Dr. Siddiqui brought up a very interesting point. There's still more work to be done. As we are going about collecting race-based data, who is going to have access? How are we going to go about collecting it? Are the important fundamental factors? Again, in order for us to strategically move from a moment in time to a movement, in order to create sustainable change, we need to have consistent methods of collecting the data and concrete methods of sharing it. So still work to need, that needs to be done, but we were able to uplift some of those discussions into the conversation 30 at 8.30. We also talked to my colleague and friend in the US, Dr. Joseph Richardson, regarding the issue of gun violence and victimization that is still going on both here in Toronto and in the US and throughout our global communities. We have colleagues in Johannesburg, South Africa, who are also reporting the same instances in Jamaica and Kingston, Jamaica as well, who are also reporting the same instances. That gun violence and homicide violence and victimization, both for those who are injured by gun violence and all those who lose their lives is still going on to the backdrop. We were able to talk about the the continued erasure, if you will, of Black people um, under the guise of both state-sanctioned gun violence as well as interpersonal violence that's still going on. But most importantly, we were able to talk about the things that no one seems to be addressing at this moment, which is if someone is murdered, let's take Audrey, um, I'm sorry, Ahmad Audrey's family. Because we are now quarantined and social distancing, 
communities, black and brown communities that historically rely on collective coping and caring to deal with the management of the grief, to cope with such tragedy are no longer able to do so. Do so. What are the implications, the mental health implications for thousands of communities who are now not able to grief, grieve and cope in that manner? We're going to talk about that and continue that conversation as well. And then we also had our dear friend from the Canadian Mental Health Association uh, recently this past week, Upala Chandrasekhar, who really talked about the fractured healthcare system. Again, uplifting into the conversation, the important understanding of the fact that we had these fractured systems in our healthcare system prior to COVID-19. And COVID-19 has ripped that Band-Aid off and is now exposing it for the world to see. For the world to see that disproportionately all of the inequities that disproportionately affect predominantly black and brown communities. And so she began to talk about, with a particular emphasis on mental health, the unequal distribution, if you will, of funding streams that fund our healthcare system, but also to the exclusion of our mental health care. Uh, we talked about the fact that mobile crisis units, where you have police officers and mental health responders who partner together to respond to individuals who are in crisis, they aren't coming. So as a result of COVID-19. So what do we do? How do we support them uh, during this pandemic? Very, very important. But not only how do we support those individuals during the pandemic, but how do we support folks afterwards? We've been sheltering in place for quite some time now, and we know that as a result, there'll definitely be an uptick on some of the mental health needs that people will um, need assistance with. These are the kinds of candid conversations, if you will, that I wanted to have on the Instagram Live platform of 30 at 8.30. And so we're hosting them every Wednesday night for 30 minutes, holding the space for us to discuss and uplift those in candid conversations, those important conversations. We also knew that folks are being inundated with data. How many individuals have tested positive for COVID-19? How many individuals have lost their lives as a result of COVID-19? And so while this, the, that data is being presented to you, which is very important as well, we wanted to have a different kind of conversation. A conversation that gives you information, but also is very candid from the head space, as I say, and the heart space. And so it is our honor but also a privilege to be able to serve our communities in that way. And I am forever grateful. It is my sincere hope that as we move through this global pandemic, we will continue to have these conversations and perhaps thereafter, but that we have an understanding that the possibilities are endless for us endless for us to move the needle, endless opportunity for us to understand that we have an ethical responsibility to act. We have a responsibility to respond to some of our most vulnerable communities, not just now during this global pandemic, 
but even after it. And so I remember during the introduction of the crib, I said, my biggest fear as we launched this platform, as we launched this IG live show is that we'll miss that opportunity. We'll miss that opportunity to move, to act, to move from just focused on one moment in time to a movement that will allow us to create sustainable change. I hope not, I hope not. So I thank you all for your time. If you'd like to reach out, please do not uh, hesitate to direct message us uh, at the crib community on Instagram. Please tune in to 30 at 8.30 every Wednesday night where we hold the space for some of our most vulnerable. And if you'd like to learn more about the crib, please don't hesitate to visit us at www.the-crib.org. In the meantime, everyone, keep well and keep safe. Take care.